All right, good morning, Weymouth. Good morning, come on in, welcome. We'll get started here this morning. Thanks again for joining us. My name is Chris, I'm the pastor here. Happy to see you all this morning. Welcome to September. Uh, as we get started in our worship service this morning, uh, our practice here is we'll just take a few moments. Uh, we'll take a few moments in just quiet prayer, silent prayer in our own hearts to, uh, to prepare ourselves for worship. So please uh, take a few moments and bow and pray with me. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And Father, we, we praise you this morning. We bless your name because of how you have blessed us in Christ how you have chosen us in him to receive in him every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that in him we can be holy and blameless before you. So help us to bless you in him, to praise you uh, in, in faith and in joy and in wonder at how you have worked in your son to make us holy, to bring us into your presence. So remind us this morning that we praise you and we pray and we do all these things in Christ's name, in him who is our Savior. And so we pray that you help us to do that this morning for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. of Jesus on the cross of Calvary he declares his work is finished he has spoken this hope to me though the sun had ceased its shining though the war appeared as lost Christ has triumphed over evil it was finished upon that cross now the curse it has been broken jesus paid the price for me full the pardon he has offered great the welcome that i receive boldly i approach my father clothed in jesus righteousness there is no more guilt to carry it was finished upon that cross
Death was once my great opponent, fear once had a hold on me, but the Son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Death was once my great opponent, fear once had a hold on me, but the Son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Yes, He rose that we would be free indeed, free from every plan of darkness, free to live and free to love. Death is dead and Christ is risen. It was finished upon that cross. Onward to eternal glory, to my Savior and my God. I rejoice in Jesus' victory. It was finished upon that cross. It was finished upon that cross. It was finished upon that cross. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. 
perfect submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above. Filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Well, as we continue in worship this morning, we just have a few uh, announcements to make you aware of here. It's uh, officially September, which is uh, an exciting month here in the life of our church. We have a number of things uh, happening uh, starting off this month, um, so be sure to check out the bulletins at the welcome table. Uh, keep an eye on our website, weymouthchurch.com, for uh, just details and information about the various ministries and in classes and things. Uh, we have a Q&A that's happening uh, on Sunday, September 17th from 6.30 to 8.30. Uh, we have a membership class on that following Sunday, September 24th, uh, after the service. Uh, but two things I want to focus in on this morning is uh, two things that are starting up this uh, following week. Uh, this Wednesday on the 6th, we have our Weymouth Family Nights starting up. This is something we've been talking about for a while. This is a night for our church family to come together to invite people from the community in as well to, to gather and and. and and engage people and uh, share the gospel and equip one another uh, with the word of God. And so uh, we have a number of things that'll be happening this Wednesday night. We have a, a youth group. Our youth group is returning, uh, Weymouth students. That'll be meeting at 630. Uh, and if you are a middle schooler or high schooler, 6th or 12th grade, you're welcome to come to that. And, and don't worry, we've, we've handed that off to AJ. So if you, you can come and you can hang out with the young, cool guy, you don't have to come hang out with your weird Uncle Chris anymore. Um, <laughs> So that'll be good. So students is happening 6.30 to 8.30. We also have a group of parents who unfortunately do have to come and hang out with me. Um, so we have Parent Connect, which will be a time for, for parents to come and encourage one another, uh, pray for one another. But also we're going to be uh, just talking and thinking through different uh, topics, different issues related to raising our kids, whether they're newborns, whether they're teenagers, whether they're adult children, uh, and just how we address different topics from Scripture when it comes to parenting. Uh, so we'll have that. We'll also have uh, Weymouth kids. We'll have nursery care. We'll have activities and, and lessons for elementary age, preschool age kids happening as well. And then we also have our, mid our midweek prayer group led by Russ Kinnebrew. Uh, that's going to be a time for anyone, any age, any stage of life to come and, and read scripture together, read the Bible together, and also pray in response. So our hope is that these Wednesday nights will be a sweet time for us to gather together as a church family midweek, but also uh, an easy access point for non-Christian friends and family uh, to, to be invited that might not normally come on a Sunday morning might want to come and, and talk about a topic related to parenting or learn more about prayer or uh, they might have a student who wants to come and, and hang out with other students. So that'll be that's starting up this Wednesday, 6.30 to 8.30, and then that'll continue uh, each week at 6.30 going forward here. Uh, another thing starting up a week from today is we uh, are launching a class on one-to-one -one Bible reading. And now that phrase is not a usual phrase we, we hear 
you know, in our country a lot. It's actually an Australian phrase. It comes from some Australian uh, guys, some Australian ministers. Um, but the idea is uh, we think one of the best ways to engage non-Christians, share the gospel with non-Christians, and also to uh, encourage and, and equip uh, newer believers is to just read the Bible with them, right? Like you can read the Bible for yourself. We come and gather corporately and hear preaching. But uh, one of the best ways to engage and help others is to invite them to read the Bible in small groups, whether that's two people, three people, four people. Um, and so this class that's starting next Sunday, 9 a.m., uh, we'll be meeting in the youth room. Uh, it's a class that's open for adults. It's also open for middle schoolers and high schoolers that'll kind of take the place of our normal youth class on Sundays at 9 because we think that this skill of reading the Bible is, is, is something that uh, all believers should know how to do and should be able to do when their own families, do with their friends and with their neighbors. And the vision for this kind of comes, uh, it's, it's articulated well in a book called The Trellis and the Vine. So I just wanted to read a paragraph from this. These are two Australian guys, Colin Marshall and Tony Payne, and uh, they set out a vision for this uh, Bible-reading movement. And so they say this. They say, imagine if all Christians, as a normal part of their discipleship, were caught up in a web of regular Bible reading, not only digging into the Word privately, but reading it with their children before bed, with their spouse over breakfast, with a non-Christian colleague at work once a week over lunch, with a new Christian for follow-up once a fortnight for mutual encouragement, and with a mature Christian friend for uh, once a month for mutual encouragement. It would be a chaotic web of personal relationships, prayer, and Bible reading, more of a movement than a program. But at another level, it would be profoundly simple and within reach of all. And so that's our hope with that class is to kind of help train people to launch into a Bible reading movement because you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a graduate of seminary to come and read the Bible with another person. And so what we're going to be doing starting next Sunday at 9 is, is, is learning how to do that, learning some skills, some models, some, some ways to do that together. So you can sign up for that if you go to our website and click on events. You can click on the one-to-one Bible reading class and sign up there. There's also a paper sign-up in the back at the welcome table. If you have more questions about that, you can come and talk to me as well. I'd love to answer any questions you have. And then uh, finally, our final announcement this morning is uh, a friend of mine, Nick. Nick Spurgeon is here. Uh, He's an associate pastor at Parkside Church in Bainbridge. Uh, I've known Nick for a number of years here. We kind of came up at Parkside, came up through Parkside together. So uh, Nick has graciously accepted an invitation to come and open God's word with us this morning. So he'll be preaching uh, later in the service. So be sure to, to welcome him after the service as well. Uh, so in light of all these things, we'll, uh, we'll pray now together. We'll have a time of pastoral prayer. And as we do so, we want to continue our pattern of, of praying for the, the global church, praying for other local like-minded church here. And, here. and so uh, this morning, I thought since, since Nick is here, we, we'd, we'd pray together for Parkside, uh, a, a local church, a partner church uh, in the gospel here on the, over on the east side. I know, I know they're on the east side and we're on the west side. I know it's a thing, right? Um, but we can still pray for, for other churches, even if it's uh, across the, the Cuyahoga River. I almost bobbled that, uh, the Cuyahoga River there. So we're praying for Parkside uh, over there in Bainbridge. And then also as far as the global church, we'll be praying this morning for the country of India, uh, which I think is number 11 on the Open Doors World Watch List for countries where it's the most dangerous to be a Christian. Um, so we'll be praying for them this morning as well. So please uh, bow your heads and pray with me. Well, Father, we, we praise you this morning as we've uh, already sung of the, the story that we have of, of your grace, of your faithfulness, of your steadfast love, that you uh, sent your son to, to, to rescue and to redeem a people for yourself, and that we can praise you together as your people this morning. 
And so as we continue to do that, both uh, corporately here, but then also throughout the week as we work and, and serve and spend time with our families, with our neighbors, Lord, help us to live lives of, of praise and service to you, to tell more people uh, this story that you've uh, worked out in our lives, worked out in our midst in the person of your son. Lord, so help us to do these things. Help us to, to glorify you through our words to one another, or our songs to you, our actions for you this week. Lord, give us the grace by your spirit to, to glorify you in all that we do. Forgive us this morning for uh, our sins, for our idolatry, for our rebellion that, uh, that, that holds us back from communion with you. Lord, we thank you that in our union with Christ, through our faith in him, that uh, we will never be cast out of your presence, that we can never... Um, be beyond the pale of your forgiveness. Lord, so forgive us for all those things this morning and help us as we uh, live out this life of faith together uh, as a church family. Lord, we, we lift up these family nights starting on Wednesdays, the class starting next Sunday, the opportunities we have to engage our community, uh, to work with, with students and parents and kids, to help each other pray together, Lord, to help each other get into your word together. We just pray for that movement of, of Bible reading, that that will uh, launch from here, that you'll equip us to take your word, to speak your word to other people, that more people might come to know Christ through reading scripture, through the pages of the Bible. And we also lift up uh, other churches and other places, both locally and globally, that are, um, that are seeking to share your word. Lord, we thank you for Parkside. We thank you for the, the ministry that uh, you do through them each week, for uh, the ministry you've worked in my own life through that place and the lives of so many others. Lord, we, uh, we lift up Alistair and Jeff and the elders and, and others and, and the church plants and, and just all that they're doing. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. Uh, the speaking of your word, both through classes and life groups and personal relationships. Um, just just grow more people, bring more people into the kingdom through that church and through that ministry. And we thank you for how you're using Nick there and the chance to have him come and, and share your word with us this morning. Please uh, bless the preaching of your word and, and uh, may, may it encourage us, may it strengthen us, may it convict us of our sin and comfort us with the hope of the gospel. And then we lift up as well churches uh, in India that are doing that this morning, Lord. We think of church plants and villages and pastors and, and city centers and uh, in northern India and southern India, Lord. And in particular, we pray for uh, the Delhi Bible Institute and Isaac Shaw and, and others that, um, that are seeking to train up pastors, train up church planters, and send them out to places where it's dangerous, where it's hard to, to do ministry, hard to be a Christian. We pray, that, we pray that you'll strengthen the believers there. You'll help the gospel to go out and your word to spread, even in the face of, of persecution and hostility and arrest and violence. Um, just grow your kingdom there, Lord, in a powerful way, uh, in a way that only makes sense because you are the one who, who does it, Lord. So help us to have that kind of confidence here as we seek to share the gospel and to speak your word with others. And help us as we praise you now and as we uh, think together about your forgiveness in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So uh, with that in mind, I want to invite the uh, kids to come on up to the front here. See, we got this morning. Muted my mic for some reason. Uh, we're going to keep going. You guys can have a seat on the steps here. We're going to uh, continue on through our time in the catechism. Uh, nice. We're going through the uh, New City Catechism together. Um, and who remembers what a catechism is? A series of question and answers. Nice. Every week. Believe right every week, like clockwork. Yeah, it's a the catechism is a series of questions and answers that tell us that summarize what we believe as Christians, 
And we're in, a, we're in a series in the Catechism where we've just been going through the Lord's Prayer, this prayer that Jesus has given us to pray in Matthew 6. And um, we've been taking it line by line. And so this week we're looking at the line where uh, Jesus instructs us to pray to God, to pray to our Father. He says, and forgive us our debts that we have also, as we have also forgiven our debtors. So part of when we pray to God, we pray to him as our Father for his name to be hallowed, for his kingdom to come, for him to meet our daily needs. But we also need to recognize that we're sinners who need forgiveness. And at least the English Standard Version uses the word debt there um, as we think about sin. And so I thought to help us understand that, uh, one illustration we could use is I have my phone here, right? It's an iPhone, right? Are these cheap or not cheap? No, they're not cheap, right? So what would happen if I let you borrow my phone and you took it and you decided to play catch with it for some reason, right? And, um, and then you broke it. What would happen? Would I cry? Probably. I would probably cry, yeah. Uh, I'd probably cry. Um, what, what would you have to do to make that right if, say, you guys decided to play catch with my phone and then broke it? Yeah, right? You'd have to get me a new one, or your parents would have to get me a new one. Now, is that, could they just go to the Apple store, AT&T, and get a free phone and say, hey, we broke our pastor's phone, and can you give us a free one? Would you be able to get it for free? No. You might, because you could turn on the cuteness, but I don't think it would work. Um, right? <laughs> just embarrassing, yeah. Uh, right? No, it would cost money, right? And so, now, if I wanted to forgive you, right, because a debt has been created, if you were to break my phone, there would be a debt that you would owe me because you broke my phone, right? And so you, now either you or your parents would have to go to the phone store and, and pay that debt, or I could forgive you, but in order to forgive you, I still don't have a phone, right? I still have a broken phone, so somebody would have to pay the price for me to get a new phone. Either you and your parents would pay that price, or I would pay that price myself. And so I think when it uses, in the catechism, when it uses that word debt, that helps us understand that when we sin, when we've rebelled against God and we've broken his commandments, there's a, there's a debt spiritually that's created that we owe to God that, um, that has to be paid. And it's paid by God's justice. It's paid in his holiness where either, and either we're going to pay the price, you know, by receiving God's judgment, by uh, spending eternity in hell apart from God, or God can forgive us that debt. He cannot hold it against us. But if he does do that, then somebody still has to pay for it. Somebody still has to pay the price for it. And so that's why God sent his son Jesus to the cross, to pay our debt, to die in our place, to pay the debt that we owed God spiritually so we don't have to. And so the only, the only way we can be forgiven, the only way we can pray for God to forgive us our debts, is if we trust in Jesus who paid that debt for us in our place so that we can be forgiven, we can have a relationship with God and then if we believe that, if we trust in Christ's forgiveness, then that should lead us to want to forgive other people. It should want to lead us to offer uh, the same forgiveness God has shown us, even when it's costly, even when it means that we have to pay the price to forgive other people. Because remember that Christ paid the price to forgive us. So we pray for God to forgive us our sins, and we pray that in Jesus' name, knowing that only through Christ can we be forgiven. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? You guys want to play catch with my phone real quick, just for fun? No? Okay. Yeah, good. All right, well, let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we thank you for how you have provided this forgiveness in Christ, that even though we are debtors before you, even though we've broken your law, um, that you sent your son to pay the debt that we owe, to die in our place, to pay the price for our sins. Um, so, Lord, help us to, to rest in that, to trust in Christ as the only one who can bring us the forgiveness that we need, and help us to offer that forgiveness to other people, even when it's costly. And Lord, so we pray this morning that you'll forgive us our debts as we forgive the debts of others, Lord. And we pray that 
In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, well, you guys can go to Children's Church now. You can line up behind Mrs. Martin, and then the, uh, the rest of us will stand, and we'll sing another song together. So please stand. is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness fails his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. His oath is covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other the ground is sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Amen. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father God, we just thank you that you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins, Lord, and that upon that rock um, we, uh, we will stand, Lord. We thank you that we can gather here together to, to praise your name, Lord. We just we praise you. We bless your name. We, um, we are so thankful for all the opportunities we have to, um, to just glorify you all throughout our lives, Lord. Pray for uh, Pastor Nick as he uh, comes up to deliver your word, Lord. I pray that you would speak in him and through him and that we would receive your word today, Lord. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me just say thank you to Chris uh, for having me come here. 
uh, this morning from Parkside, and um, it's such a privilege to be here. I, I'm actually encouraged when uh, he mentioned the trellis and the vine in one-to-one Bible reading, uh, because uh, first off, of how important that is to the life of the church, I found that to really be, as I serve at Parkside, to be the most critical aspect is to just get with people and read the Bible, uh, because we know that that is the way that God works, is through His Word. Um, but also uh, because it, it really does connect pretty closely uh, to what I want to speak to you about from Philippians chapter 3. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, would you please take your, your Bible and open up to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, this morning here, uh, we'll look at verses 17 to the very first verse in chapter 4. So Philippians three seventeen to 4, 1. Three seventeen to four one. So, here's Paul's words to us this morning, as we look starting in verse seventeen. This is what Paul says: Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's say just a a quick prayer for God's help. Father, we ask that as we come to Philippians chapter 4, that you would indeed help us as we study these things. Would you um, write these truths on our hearts this morning? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to Philippians chapter 3 this morning, I want to begin just by asking a question, by using a question really to frame our study of this passage. And the question is this, who has been the greatest influence on your life? Who has had the greatest influence? As you, as you look back on your life, you ask yourself the question, who, who has really shaped me into the person I am today? As, as I think about that question and seek to answer that question, there are those people in my life who I can readily identify as those people who have marked me, who have shaped me, who have had the greatest impact, some of those people that I work with today. So who has had the greatest influence on your life? For for some of you, it may be uh, somebody in church history, a a Moody, a Spurgeon, a Calvin, a Luther. For some of you, it may be from American history, a a Lincoln or a Roosevelt. A a friend of mine just recently had his third child and his first child is named Lincoln. And now his third is named Theodore for after Theodore Roosevelt. So we obviously know who his influences are. But for some of you, it might have been that person in the church that you grew up in that came alongside you, put their arm around you, and showed you what it meant and looked like to walk with Jesus. So who has had the greatest influence in your life? The reason I ask that question is because it really gets at the heart of what Paul is 
getting at here in Philippians chapter 3. From the, from the very beginning of Philippians in chapter 1 verse 7, Paul, Paul has been instructing this church on the basics of Christianity. This is a church. These are people who have been called by God, loved by God, and have been made alive in Christ. And now he's instructing them how then they are to live as those who are in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul instructs them like this. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by any of your opponents. So the Apostle Paul calls this church to live a life that is consistent with the gospel. That's what worthy of the gospel entails. But how are they to do that? Well, as you look through the rest of the book, the Apostle Paul gives three examples of what this looks like in the life of three different Christians. He points our attention, for example, to Timothy, and then to Epaphroditus, and then even to Paul himself. But there's a reason that Paul does that, and we'll look at that in a moment. But it's these three examples that really mark the heart of the book of Philippians that bring us into our text this morning. We look at Philippians 3.17 and, and to 4.1, and we will actually see this morning uh, the purpose and importance of Christ-like examples and the effect that those examples are to have in our lives as Christians. So as we look at our verses before us this morning, we look down first, and I want us to see in verse 17, Paul's call to us this morning. Look at verse 17, let me read it again. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The call that Paul gives to the Philippian church, the call that he gives to us this morning, is a call to imitation. A call to imitation. Now, we've probably heard the phrase that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? But here, Paul is not in any way calling them to imitate him because he desires to be flattered. For Paul, this is essential to what it means to follow Christ. It's actually the heart of his method of discipleship. Paul understands that disciples, that Christians are made by following other Christians, by seeing how they live their life, by, by observing how they walk with Jesus Christ. In fact, if we look in our passage and we were to do a study into this word that he uses to imitate me, imitation was a word that really encompassed following the whole of someone's life. It was commonly used in philosophical schools in Paul's day where the practice was that the students wouldn't just learn from their teacher's content, but they would actually learn by observing how those teachers put to practice what they were teaching. In fact, a Roman philosopher, Seneca, in Paul's day, gives us a glimpse into this practice when he taught, let us choose men who teach by their lives, men who teach us what we ought to do and then prove it by their practice, who show us what we should avoid and then are never caught doing what they have ordered us to avoid. Choose as a guide one whom you admire more when you see him act 
than when you hear him speak. This is exactly Paul's understanding of discipleship. It's a picture of discipleship by imitation. It's, it's inherently relational. It takes place in the, the context of relationships. It's, it's not only relational, but it, it is instructional. It instructs people in doctrine and how to think biblically and Christianly. But primarily, it's taught those type of instructions so that it shapes their very lives. As we think about what Paul is saying here in this very first command, we do have to ask ourselves the question, though, how then can we identify those people in the church? What marks them out as those who are worthy to be followed or uh, who, who are worthy to be imitated? Paul clearly says, join in imitating me and those who walk like me, but But what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, in order to see what he means, we only have to jump back, I think, to a few verses. And look at what Paul says concerning himself. For example, in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 8. You remember Paul, he has this fantastic resume. One that is almost unparalleled. But then he says these words. Verse 7, But whatever gain I had... I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Why would Paul use himself as an example? Well, because his life is shaped by the gospel. He is willing to lay aside all of those things which he once held so dear in order that he might know Christ. Another person he makes reference to, I think, is this man by the name of Epaphroditus in chapter 2. We've mentioned him already, but Epaphroditus is nowhere else in the New Testament. But Paul says he is worthy to be followed. Why? Philippians chapter 2, verse 29 and 30. Receive him in the Lord, honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Why is somebody like an Epaphroditus, who's relatively unknown elsewhere in the New Testament, why is he worthy to be followed? Because his life is shaped by the gospel. He was willing to lay aside his his own life to serve the Apostle Paul. Finally, Timothy. Timothy, we look back in chapter 2 again. Timothy would have been somebody, if we read Paul's letters, in all his appearance would have been unimpressive. Paul has to constantly encourage him. He has to ask other churches at times to encourage Timothy. And yet you look at the compliment that Paul gives to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 20. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for others seek their own interest, but Timothy seeks the interest of Christ. Why is Timothy's life worthy of imitating, of following? 
because it's shaped by the gospel. Timothy was willing to lay aside his own interest to serve and put above his own interest that of the Philippian church. And inherently, if, if, we, were be, if we were to work through the whole of the book of Philippians, the reason that they do this is because Paul will say they have the mind of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5. These are men who are worthy of imitation because the way that they think and the way that they live, they're actually shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, he took the form of a servant, and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul sets these men before the church in Philippi and he even sets them before us today. He's saying, you want to know those who are, who are worthy of following. It's those who are shaped by Christ. They embody this self-emptying humility of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know who each of you would say is a person or a people who have had the greatest influence on your life, but here Paul really does give us a rubric of those who should, who as a believing community should have influence on us. It's not necessarily the person who may have the greatest followers online. It, it might not be the person or group of people that have the greatest platform in society. Truthfully, it's not even someone who perfectly demonstrates all these qualities. But it is those, says Paul, who have had the, the gospel pressed so deeply into their hearts that it fundamentally shapes the whole of their lives. One of the, one of the blessings, friends, of, of being part of a local church is the grace that God gives to us in being able to see this lived out in the lives of others. I think about my Sunday group that I teach every Sunday. And one of the privileges as their pastor is being able to see them grow progressively in having the gospel shape their lives. To see these people who have walked through some of the worst kind of suffering and to see them shaped in the midst of that suffering. To see them go out of their way to serve others in our Sunday school class. It's actually something that's that's convicting as their pastor to see how the gospel shapes their very being. It's people like that that Paul says, church, find them, watch them, get to know them and imitate them. Now you notice as we continue in the passage, the purpose for this is, is twofold. And first, you see the reason he says this in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears, many now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul, as a, as a pastor in this church, knows that there are times where it's almost like there is a, a threat of deceitful influence that can come in and, and influence a church. 
I was thinking about this, this, well, really the last two weeks as I was scrolling through online through social media. And I realized that one thing after the other on social media, there was this advertisement of things as to why I should buy it. And I was, I was struck by the fact that often this is presented as such a powerful way of, of branding and marketing. And I asked myself, why? Why is that such a, a powerful influence when you see a person not only selling a product but using a product? And so I read online a couple different articles about this, about how this is such a powerful influence in the culture today. And one of the things that struck me was in the article that I was reading, the, the person said that the influencer or the social media influencer, whatever you want to call it, has such a big platform and so much power because they not only sell a brand or a product, they sell a lifestyle. They sell a lifestyle. Now, when you read Paul's words here in verse 18, you realize that's exactly what he is talking about here. The reason that there are those who have been a part of the church at one time and now walk as enemies of the cross is because they were sold a certain lifestyle. You look at how Paul uses the language here. It's heartfelt, but it's serious. He writes this letter. He comes to this part in verse 18 with tears in his eyes because even though he's not aware of the social media influence generation, he does realize the power that influences can have in the church. And he says there are many, many who now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And when he talks about this group here, we don't necessarily know who they are. But we can learn something about them from his description. It seems apparent that at one time, they were part of the visible church. They were known to members of the congregation. They perhaps were, were, enjoyed fellowship. At one point, they were faces, perhaps, that Paul and the rest of the Philippian congregation could readily identify. But as Jesus warned in the Gospels, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other, for other things came and choked out the seed that was planted. They began to pursue their desires. You see how Paul says their end is destruction, their God is their belly. Their minds are set on earthly things. Perhaps they had been influenced by others who had sold them a lifestyle of freedom, a freedom without any boundaries, a freedom to pursue pleasure. Rather than being discipled from the likes of Paul, they became discipled by the secular culture. You know, this is, this is actually somewhat prevalent in the church today, the, the wider church. I recently listened to a podcast from a, from a guy who, he had all kinds of theological degrees, MDiv, PhD, even did his undergrad in Bible. And now, he's completely walked away from the faith. Often in the church, or in the, the church world, this is called deconstruction. There's all sorts of definitions of what that means. I don't want to minimize the pain that people experience as they succumb to it. 
But I was saddened when I heard that podcast. Because this was a guy who had read some of his stuff, enjoyed some of his stuff, and now he writes online posting the freedom that he now supposedly has as someone who no longer follows Jesus. And Paul says here, no, you're not, in, you're not free, you're enslaved. Your God is your belly. But you think about somebody like that and you think about the impact that that can have on a church, especially younger people in the church today. Younger people who are trying to find their identity to make sense of a world that seems to be in confusion. Who are, who are sold a lifestyle online and find it attractive. It's not an attractive, attractive to kids. It's attractive to us as well if we're honest. Day to day, we, we live torn between the tension of the world as John describes it in his epistle marked by the desires of the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life and than a life lived under the jurisdiction of Christ. You can feel the pull between the two. And Paul says here, I want you to be careful who disciples you. I want you to be careful what disciples you. Because I want you to know that there are many, many of whom I now tell you, even with tears, who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. But you notice there's a second reason that Paul calls us to this kind of imitation. He warns us here of, of, of these people who now walk as enemies, but he also reminds us of a certain reality that is ours if we are in Christ. You see this in verse 20. He says, but you, Christian." You're a citizen of heaven. Why would you follow those who follow Jesus? Because of where your citizenship lies. Right? How, how often, if you think about it, do we need to be reminded on, the, on a day-to-day -day basis as we feel those tensions that I just talked about of our identity in Christ? You notice in the passage there is really, and I want, I want to make this point clearly, but there's this stark contrast that Paul makes here. He says, describing these enemies of the cross, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. But he almost, it's almost forcefully, he turns to verse 20. He says, but you, Christian, he gives a description of who and what a Christian is. He says, your end is transformation, not destruction. Your God is the Lord Jesus and not your belly or your desires. And your mind is set on heavenly things because you belong as a citizen to heaven's jurisdiction. When Paul uses the language of citizenship here, the church would have understood it in a way I think that may be lost on us today. If you know anything about Philippi, it was a Roman colony. But it was a transplant in Macedonia. Yet the citizens of Philippi, even though they didn't live in Rome, their lives constantly bore the marks of a Roman citizen. 
Their values were shaped by Rome. Their principles were shaped by Rome. Their lifestyle was shaped by Rome. If someone was to ask them, who are you? They would say, we're Romans. But you live in Philippi. Yeah, but we're Romans. Paul says the same thing takes place when we're united to Christ. In Ephesians 2, he says we've been made alive with Christ and we're seated with him in the heavenly places now. The gospel not only changes who we are, but it changes, we could say, our mailing address. Our primary mailing address is that of a citizen of heaven. We've been set free, as we know, from sin's penalty. But we've also been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. And so Paul says here now, Christian, you live under heaven's jurisdiction. Your life, your principles, your values are shaped by heaven. Who are you? You're a citizen of heaven, but you live in the United States. Yes, <laughs> but I'm a citizen of heaven. Paul un unpacks this idea somewhat further in Colossians 3. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things of earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says to us, he says, friends, in Jesus, you're no longer of this world. So you no longer have to walk according to the course of this world. I remember when my wife and I moved up here from Louisiana. That's where we were originally from. And we first moved up here, and we certainly um, noticed differences <laughs> between people in Louisiana and people in Ohio. There were things that we were used to, certain customs, sayings, different ways of doing things. And I can remember one of the things that caught me off guard initially as we moved here was when I said, uh, yes, ma'am, to somebody in a, in a store. And she immediately corrected me and said, don't say that. I know you're trying to be respectful, but it makes me feel old. <laughs> and that happened to me multiple times. I'm not kidding. And I can remember thinking to myself, yeah, but you don't realize if I don't say ma'am, I'm looking for my mom behind me trying to smack me, you know? <laughs> But one of the things my wife and I realized is when we first moved here is there was this feeling of, yeah, we're not from around here, right? And that certainly, though sounds somewhat funny, that certainly is a picture of what it means to be a Christian. As you follow Christ, as you become more like Christ, as his grace is at work in your heart, shaping your life, it becomes readily apparent, you're not from around here, are you? Peter expresses this in his epistle, 1 Peter 2. 
in the way he talks about the Christian. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, strangers, strangers in a, a foreign world, you'll look different. At times it'll be hard because it's hard to be different. But Paul says that's because you are. You are a citizen of heaven. Christ has brought you under his jurisdiction. Now I'd be remiss if I stopped here because you know this. Paul doesn't just stop there. He not only tells them of their identity. But he points them towards their hope. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And if you had any doubt if he could do that, he does it by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You're given this certain promise here. Why why would Paul call them to to follow these Christ-like examples? Well, because they're citizens of heaven and they have a sure and future hope of transformation. We're given this promise here that the work that he's begun in us, he'll, he'll bring it to completion. That we will be made like him. I think when Paul puts this actually in the context of of discipleship, that the hope that he gives here, this hope of of glory, we could say, gives us every reason in those, those quiet moments where we say to ourselves, is all this really worth it? It gives us every reason to say, hang in there, because yes, it absolutely is. Because one day, he says here, you will be made like the one who you've been following since he called you to himself. That's the very hope that he gives here. It, it's very, very easy, I think, to forget this aspect of the gospel. Because it seems so far away. But you realize that that's part of the reason At least I think it's part of the reason why God hasn't just saved us as individuals, but he saved us into a community of faith. He gives us fellow believers to walk alongside us to remind us of these very realities when the tension of life comes to bear in on us and we say, oh my goodness, sometimes I just feel like giving up and they say to you, hang in there. One day you'll be made like Christ. One day you'll be transformed and he'll subject all things to himself. So Paul calls us to imitation, to imitate those who imitate Christ because there's many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. But as we just saw here, that is not you, he says. You are a citizen of heaven. And finally, and somewhat quickly, he drives home in chapter 4, verse 1, the importance of this. Why is this kind of discipleship so important? 
because it's one of the ways in which you will stand firm in the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We could actually read this here to say, stand firm in this way in the Lord. And when he says in this way, it's not just making a reference to uh, the hope of transformation. It's not just making a reference to the warning of those who who now walk as enemies of the cross. It's not even a reference uh, to this citizenship of heaven. The reference to in this way is to chapter 3, verse 17. The way that you will stand firm is by keeping your eyes on those who imitate Christ. Now I realize I, I say this and I, would com- I commend this to you. And I realize that as I come here to this church, I don't know, really I don't know any of you, except for Chris. But there are a lot of different contexts and backgrounds that mark many of this church. Some may come this morning hurt by people in the church who at first served you thought as examples to follow in Christ and now they're a painful memory for some you have been the person who have who has poured your life into other people only to have them either stiff arm you or give you the cold shoulder later and you say I never want to do that again for some of you maybe it has been positive I don't want to harp on the negative and you have sought to either pull people alongside of you to disciple them or maybe you've had people disciple you and they really have been the people who have influenced your life well for everyone whether you've had a good or a bad experience the truth is the same that the gospel is guarded and Christians are built up when we seek to imitate those who imitate Christ. And so I just want to encourage you to this end. Maybe as you sit on Sunday mornings and you work through one-to-one discipleship, find those around you in the church who readily ident- who you can readily identify as someone who walks closely with Jesus and just ask them to meet with you. Maybe you're an older saint who has walked with Jesus for a while. Find those younger saints and bring them alongside you. And teach them what it means to follow Jesus. You know, that, uh, this is off the cuff somewhat, but that's exactly what Paul does in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace of Jesus Christ and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul sees generational discipleship here. This is a sort of gospel succession here in the church. He says, what you've seen in me and trust to faithful people who will then entrust to faithful people who will then entrust to faithful people. And Paul's whole argument there is that is how the gospel is, is guarded and kept. Friends, that's how it will be kept here.
So find those around you who you can identify as those who walk closely with Jesus and ask them to, to disciple you or find those who are younger than you if you've been walking with Jesus for a while and pour into them. The truth of the matter, friends, is that as Paul, Paul begins this letter, he reminds the Christians that he who has begun a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. And maybe, just maybe, part of the way that he will bring that work to completion is through the involvement of one another in each other's lives. Encouraging each other, discipling each other as we all grow into Christ-likeness. Let me pray for us, and I'll leave that to you to consider. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this reminder. We thank you for the way in which you have organized the church, you've structured the church, and you have brought a group of people together. And you've given them all the resources to be made more like your son. You've given us the scriptures as our instruction. You've given us one another as our instructors. And we ask, Lord, that you would cultivate that heart within this church. We thank you for the work that Chris is doing to cultivate that here. We pray that your hand would be upon these people for good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song. firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word what more can he say than to you he has said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never. Never, no, never forsake. Well, amen. Amen. Nick, thank you for 
<laughs> thank you, Palmer. Amen. Well, Nick, thank you for opening God's Word with us. That was a, a word we needed to hear as a church. So uh, thank you all for worshiping with us. We, I echo Nick's invitation to, to encourage one another, specifically in the Word this morning, to, to speak it to one another, to share it one another, to share what you've learned and what you've heard with someone else, and to invite one another into to lives of, of imitation, lives of, of speaking and studying and sharing God's Word together. So let's, let's uh, go with that now here with, with words that should be uh, familiar to us now as, as a word of benediction. Um, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Amen. Go in peace. <laughs>